Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman, here today with Richard Polt to discuss his recent book, Time and Trauma, Thinking Through Heidegger in the 30s. For some time, the German philosopher Martin Heidegger has been treated with a certain level of skepticism because of his engagement with the Nazi party, a skepticism that has resurfaced with the publication of the Black Notebooks, private journals he kept throughout the last several decades of his life. Diving right into the core of Heidegger's philosophy, Holt starts by taking a close look at Being and Time, published in 1927, followed by a close analysis of his philosophical developments in the 1930s. He shows through a close textual analysis that Heidegger's political engagement stemmed from certain philosophical commitments. The book then ends with an attempt to see what, if anything, can be salvaged from Heidegger's philosophy for political thinking. Richard Polt is a professor of philosophy at Xavier University and is the author of, among other things, Heidegger, An Introduction, and The Emergency of Being on Heidegger's Contributions to Philosophy. He is co-editor with Gregory Freed of the book series New Heidegger Research, and together they have translated a number of Heidegger lectures, including Introduction to Metaphysics, Nature, History, State, and Being and Truth. So Richard Polt, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Uh, so before we dive in, uh, we like to ask our guests to kind of introduce themselves uh, to listeners. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and what your main interests are? Yes. Uh, well, as you said, I've published a number of things about Heidegger, and I've also uh, collaborated with Gregory Fried on uh, translating some texts uh, of Heidegger's, especially um, rather political texts from the 1930s. Um, and together, we also uh, edit a book series called The New Heidegger research series uh, in which my book, Time and Trauma, is published. Uh, as a teacher, I, I get into a lot of other topics. I teach a lot of uh, Plato and Descartes uh, and other ancient philosophy. And uh, more recently in, in my writing and research, I've gotten into questions of philosophy of technology and environmental philosophy that have sort of uh, branched out from Heidegger. All right, great. So before diving into your book in detail, we'll be looking at Heidegger's development roughly from the publication of Being in Time in 1927 to the end of World War II in 1945. So at the beginning of this period, Heidegger was kind of a rising philosophical star, having just published this really groundbreaking new book. And by the end, he is banned from teaching and has a severe mental breakdown. Um, for which an extensive recovery was needed. So can you give us a brief summary of this time period for Heidegger, just to help contextualize things for us? Sure. Um, so as you say, it's a pretty dramatic, almost tragic collapse, but it's also a very creative uh, period. Um, and it's a period, uh, you said a lot of people are skeptical about Heidegger's politics. That's a very polite way of putting it. Um, he he uh, joined the Nazi party in 1933 and was the first uh, National Socialist Rector of the University of Freiburg. Um, he stepped down after a year, but of course, people ever since then have have had a lot of doubts about him, uh, at least so. Um, 
intellectually, philosophically, there's a lot going on. He's doing things like reading the pre-Socratics and Nietzsche and Ernst Jünger. He's uh, teaching on all sorts of topics. He's also writing a whole series of private texts. He's incredibly productive, and it's a period of ferment. Um, it's a period where he's very experimental. So um, I, personally, I find being in time to be really quite persuasive as a description of the human condition. Um, after about 1930, he gets into things that are much more questionable, and but, but very creative and interesting. So uh, to make sense of all this and to sort of find a, a focus, I focused uh, in my own book on three themes that develop from being in time. Um, one is uh, selfhood or the question of who one is and who we are. Another is the idea of an emergency or crisis. And then finally, the idea of what he calls an inception. Uh, and this was something that you didn't get in being in time, but where does the human condition come from, or Dasein, as he calls it? Uh, where does human temporality come from? So I, I try to trace those three themes, selfhood, emergency, and inception, uh, through the 30s and, and see how they play out uh, in his political thought in particular. Yeah, so early in the book, you unpack some of the key themes of being in time to see how they'll be developed in the next decade. Uh, one of the most important things you unpack early in the book is Heidegger's ecstatic temporality and how it allows us to stand out and enter authentic temporality. Can you unpack this a bit for us? Yes. So um, some traditional cultures might picture time as a cycle, a circle. Um, we tend to think of it as a line when we represent time. But um, for Heidegger, these are these are inadequate. And really, we should think of it ecstatically in the sense that we stand out uh, temporally. We stand out into the future, the, the past, and the present. Um, what this means is that uh, in, in the future ecstasis, as he calls it, we're faced the, with the question of who we are or um, the sense of our, our being, what we're living for the sake of. Uh, in the past, we are faced with the fact that we've already been somebody. We're already finding ourselves in a situation we're thrown into. And then as the future and the past uh, intersect, the present is opened up as a meaningful sphere where we can act, we can operate, so we can encounter things. So there are these three dimensions of, of time. And Heideggerian time is, is meaningful, it's dramatic, um, and it has unique contents um, at every moment. So, so it's quite different from this sort of homogenous uh, timeline. And uh, the, the idea of ecstasy emphasizes that we're not ever simply limited to some spatiotemporal point, but we're always beyond ourselves. He says um, that the human being is not a thing that stops at its skin. We, we extend out into the world and into history. Um, now, about authenticity, um, normally we're not authentic. That is, we're not. Um, normally really grappling with this human condition, but we're sort of sunk into the present and we're busy dealing with the things that confront us in the present uh, world. But he thinks that at certain extraordinary moments, uh, moments of crisis, we can come to grips with who we are, face our own mortality, face our own guilt or, or responsibility, and have, uh, at least temporarily, a, a clear-sighted, um, resolute attitude towards our own existence. And uh, there are even some suggestions 
in being in time and, and more later that in, in a sense, uh, this ecstatic temporality is generated by these authentic moments. If we didn't have these moments of crisis and vision, then time would not stretch out, or at least not as intensely uh, as it does for us. After the publication of Being in Time, Heidegger would develop his thinking on time and temporality and start referring to the event. What prompted this turn for him, and what was the significance of the event for his developing thought? Well, that, that's a huge question about Heidegger's um, post-being in time thinking. The word in, in German is Ereignis, das Ereignis, which normally means the event. But uh, everything is controversial about this, including whether it should be translated as event or not. Um, it echoes the word eigen or own. So it has been translated as en owning, which of course is not an English word, or appropriation or the event of appropriation. Uh, for me, it's it's helpful to look at um, the main text where he where he develops it, which is um, the contributions to philosophy, which is one of these private texts that he started uh, writing in 1936. And there he says that uh, das Ereignis is short for das Ereignis der Dagrundung, or the event of the grounding of the there. That to me is very helpful. So Heidegger's um, word for human or humanoid beings is Dasein, being there. Um, so we always have a there, we have a context or a world. And in being in time, he was just interested in describing worldhood, describing what it's like to be in a world. But then he starts thinking about how the there is grounded or founded. How does it uh, begin? Uh, so I interpret uh, Ereignis as, in fact, an, an event. It's an extraordinary extraordinary, unique sort of event in which uh, a world uh, opens up and Dasein's ecstatic temporality is torn open, as he puts it in some texts. Um, it's um, a radical moment in which uh, meaning uh, opens up and the question of who we are becomes uh, an urgent question. And this obviously can have some political implications if you think of the grounding of the there as a founding of a community. Uh, one of the last things you turn to in the first chapter is boredom or the emergency of a lack of emergency. This was part of his turn from strictly philosophical problems and part of his turn towards more explicitly historical and political questions. So what exactly was his concern regarding boredom? Uh, this comes up in a really interesting lecture course from 1929-1930 uh, called The Fundamental Concepts of Metaphysics, where um, he talks, uh, among other things, about animals, uh, the being of animals. Uh, and he has um, a very long and, in fact, almost uh, boring phenomenology of boredom, where he talks about experiences like um, standing around a, a train platform waiting for a train. Uh, but that's uh, superficial boredom. And he claims that in his culture at the time, in his world, there is a deeper boredom. There's a sort of deep ennui. And what it means is that people don't feel the crisis that I was talking about earlier. They're, they're sort of closed off to a crisis. Nothing feels urgent. Nothing feels unique. One way of thinking about this is that a really 
uh, intense and, and vivid and meaningful moment is something you experience as happening for the first and last time. It will never recur. But in everydayness, as Heidegger calls it, nothing happens for the first and last time. Everything is a repetition of some sort of routine, which can get oppressively dull. Uh, he says in, the, in these lectures that you need uh, what he calls inner terror for greatness. So he really wants to shake things up. He doesn't want us to be either too comfortable or, or too bored. He wants us to feel uh, emergency or uh, urgency. And that's what he that's what he gets in the 30s. He, he leaps into a political revolution and what he thinks is a philosophical revolution in an attempt to uh, really get us to feel that there is a crisis. Both in the end of the first chapter and throughout the second, Heidegger starts translating some of his key questions around selfhood into collective and political questions and starts developing ideas around authentic historicity. You develop this around two key concepts. He develops founding and the Volk. So what exactly was he wrestling with philosophically at this time? Well, a, a lot of things, but um, these themes you mentioned uh, grow out of a point in being in time that, that Dasein is always being with others. So uh, even if you're a hermit or you're solitary or you're lonely, those are just modes of being part of a society or, or culture or community. And being in time touches on uh, what seems like more political questions in a, a crucial section where he refers to um, a people, he uses the word folk uh, for once in the book, and he says that uh, a generation can discover its collective destiny through communication and struggle. Uh, and then in the 30s, he, he really tries to, tra to transition from that general philosophical point to actually being part of his community, uh, the Germans, and the Westerners also more broadly, and asking, who are we? Um, the question that he keeps repeating, who are we, um, is not supposed to discover um, a sort of preset identity, but it's supposed to generate the self as a, as a problem, I would say. Uh, selfhood as a question. He says, we are insofar as we seek ourselves. So unless you're really asking, you're actively asking the question of who you are and who we are in your community, in a sense, you do not fully exist. You're not, at least you don't authentically uh, exist. And this connects to what I was saying about inception and the grounding of the there, uh, a shared world or a shared there for a community uh, requires this question of selfhood. Um, he thinks that there are a few um, figures who might be uh, particularly uh, influential in 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 founding this shared there. Uh, typically, it would be the poet, the thinker, and the statesman. Uh, the poet for Heidegger in the 30s becomes uh, Friedrich Hölderlin. The thinker is, of course, Heidegger, and the statesman is you-know-who. Right. So one of the key themes, one of the other key themes Heidegger works through is that of struggle which he felt was being trivialized by the Nazis, um, turned from a way of keeping oneself open for questioning, as you put it, and instead downgraded into an identity in and of itself. 
Uh, can you kind of unpack this concept a bit in the relationship it had to his ongoing thoughts on the politics of his day? Sure. And uh, I was just touching on some of this. I think for Heidegger, the, the question, who are we, is supposed to be sustained. Uh, as he says in, in one text, it should be sustained throughout our entire short lifetime. So as soon as you settle down into an answer, uh, you're being inauthentic. You're, you're settling into an identity, which is a, a word he doesn't use and, and which I don't really care for because when we talk about our identity, it sounds like it's something that we can identify and that's identical throughout uh, throughout the changes um, that occur. So it seems to point to some sort of underlying thing or, or essence that belongs to us. And that's not how Heidegger thinks about human existence. Um, so there has to be a struggle to, to keep asking the question and there can be um, the projects or, or articulations of a shared destiny, but they're not supposed to settle into an identity. Um, now, this overlaps somewhat with, with Nazi language and what, with what Heidegger at least thought was going on at the time of um, the revolution. Uh, so, of course, Hitler's book is called Mein Kampf, My Struggle. Um, and there was a lot of talk at the time and, and throughout the Nazi regime of, of struggle. Um, but I think Heidegger's idea is actually more open-ended and more subtle than the, the typical Nazi point of view. So uh, we could compare it, for instance, to uh, Carl Schmitt in the concept of the political, which was published a little bit before Hitler's rise to power, but then uh, Schmitt um, became a, a pretty enthusiastic uh, supporter of the regime. Uh, according to Schmidt, uh, the, the political per se is defined by uh, us versus them. It's defined by who your enemy is. And uh, he uses a lot of ontological or existential language. So the enemy is whoever is, is a threat to the being of the community. Um, mostly, Schmidt seems to mean what we mean today in this common phrase, existential threat. In other words, a threat to our continued uh, existence or survival. But Heidegger would say there's a deeper question. Um, there's not just survival, but who you are, how you interpret your collective selfhood, which is a more subtle thing and ultimately more important, he would say, than whether you simply continue to live. So a real existential threat would be one that um, shatters the complacency of a community about who we are, um, makes them rethink it, makes them re-ask the question, who are we? Um, th this is the kind of struggle that he wanted. Um, and by the way, I'll recommend a, a book by my friend and collaborator, Gregory Fried, uh, Heidegger's Polemos, um, which um, brings out Heidegger's emphasis on struggle and confrontation um, by way of his uh, readings of uh, Heraclitus on Polemos or war. Yeah, so at this point, you finally turn to the Black Notebooks. And before we dive into their specific content, could you maybe contextualize the notebooks a bit and explain what exactly they are and why they've generated so much attention and like what sort of genre they are and how we ought to engage with them? Sure. Um, the black notebooks are literally a set of notebooks that were bound in black and they've, they're in the process of being published. Um, Heidegger has been very, very prolific from beyond the grave. Uh, his collected works are about a hundred volumes and they're still not all published. They keep coming out. 
Um, they these black notebooks are basically um, journals, thought journals, and they are the main reason for um, the latest wave of concern and alarm about Heidegger's uh, politics, um, because they include a, a lot of um, frank comments about the politics of the day and current events, uh, and uh, most notoriously, they include comments about Jews or so-called uh, world Judaism. Um, so many people assumed and, and had some evidence that Heidegger was somewhat anti-Semitic, uh, as you would have to be really to be a, a member of the Nazi party. But there wasn't much in the texts that really supported that. But in these black notebooks, um, starting in the late 30s, um, there are various disturbing uh, comments. Let's see if I can find a couple of them. Um, he says the world Judaism is responsible for the uprooting of all beings. Um, the, he says, here's the whole quote. The question of the role of world Judaism is not a racial question, but a metaphysical one, a question that concerns the kind of humanity which in an utterly unrestrained way can undertake as a world historical task the uprooting of all beings from being. So what's, what's troubling about this is that he's uh, joining his language of being and beings to these anti-Semitic tropes of the rootless Jew who is not only rootless but uproots local traditions and is a threat to rootedness. So this is a um, disturbing sort of uh, comment. Um, now, Heidegger's strongest enemies have said, aha, so, so this is what Heidegger is really all about. Um, he he directed uh, that his executors should should wait until the last phase of the publication of his collected works to to publish the black notebooks, and so according to his enemies, this is the capstone of the entire project, and now we find out what the real message of all this talk about being really is. Uh, it's um, an endorsement of the Holocaust, uh, and that's a point of view that we have to take seriously and think about. Um, I do think it's it's overblown, though. I think the the comments on Jews are sort of random and scattered and, and not very well developed. Uh, and we also have to notice that there are a lot of comments about Nazis, which are in fact um, much more frequent uh, and uh, quite critical. Uh, so it's it's a complicated point, and I'll return to this a little bit later. Um, I think we also have to keep in mind, as you said, the genre of these black notebooks. Uh, what are they? So um, I call them thought journals. And um, anybody who's kept a sort of philosophical journal, I think, understands that it's it's not a system. It's not, uh, and it's not the final word about things. You're, you're trying out different ideas or exploring different moods, and you're not sure where they're going to go. And you're not necessarily committed to these um, ideas that develop there as part of your philosophy. You're, you're trying to work things out on paper, which is something Heidegger was always trying to do. He was a constant uh, scribbler. So I don't think we should overestimate their importance, but nevertheless, uh, it's something we need to look at uh, very carefully. Yeah, so you alluded to this just now, but you described the Black Notebooks as being a place for him to go vent certain frustrations, and the result is that the notebooks have this really kind of bitter taste to them. Interestingly, 
many of his frustrations were with Nazism itself, but he places it next to liberal democracy and Soviet communism, which he thought were all embodiments of the same underlying logic. What was the driving force behind all these political paradigms as he saw it, and what, why was he so frustrated with them? Yes, well, kind of bitterness certainly is the the overriding mood of these texts, and they were dark times, of course, um, but it does get somewhat monotonously grim. Uh, everything um, he describes gets uh, interpreted as part of modern thoughtlessness and nihilism and decay. Uh, and, and in my view, he, he paints with too broad a brush, so everything, all alternatives, start to look the same. Um, this is, of course, after the period of his enthusiasm for Nazism, um, which uh, he dates to the period 1930 to 1934. So, so as early as 1930, uh, we now know that he was you know, enthusiastically recommending Mein Kampf to his brother. Um, in 1934 is when he steps down as rector. Uh, I do think that you can see after that um, that he becomes somewhat increasingly skeptical about Nazi ideology and, and disillusioned uh, to, to a certain extent. So, so the point of view that I'll describe is from the later 30s and the 1940s. He, he starts to see um, fascism, Nazism, um, communism, and liberal democracy as all essentially the same. Uh, they're all expressions of what he calls subjectivity in his sense. Uh, earlier, I was referring to the, the concept of an underlying identity for human beings um, as sort of assuming that there's this, this thing that stays the same, that's identical. Um, this could also be called subjectivity in the sense that there's, some, there's a subject, something that is lying underneath uh, our actions and thoughts, a sort of substratum um, that is, as it were, solid and, and enduring and self-certain, uh, and which then tries to establish certainty and control over the rest of the world uh, through a sort of will to power. So this is a modern view, a modern understanding of what it means to be human and, and to relate to uh, objects. Heidegger thinks that um, liberalism, liberal democracy is a sort of subjectivism in a pretty obvious way where um, individual citizens are um, sort of atomistic subjects who are deciding what they think and what they want and acting accordingly. And that's, that's how they represent themselves and uh, trying to control uh, or consume the world from their individual points of view. Um, for the communists, there's a sort of collective uh, subjectivity, uh, class subjectivity, but also trying to technically control and, and um, dominate the world. And then he comes to see Nazism as uh, actually the ultimate form of subjectivity, uh, where through an extreme totalitarian uh, regime, uh, the folk, the people, uh, or the race is the, the unit of subjectivity, again, trying to control uh, the world. So um, he doesn't see any essential difference among these political systems. Um, another way he approaches it is in terms of certain um, characteristics of late modernity that he thinks uh, are sweeping across the globe. Um, the main one is what he calls machination. A, a um, controlling, domineering uh, approach to things um, as, as resources, if you will. 
Uh, he associates this with what he calls brutality um, in a special sense that where we, we think of ourselves as, as animals or brutes um, who also have logic or reason uh, and who can use logic and calculation to satisfy our animal desires. He also uses the concept of criminality in a special sense where it means uh, breaking up um, the established order um, in order to then stick it back together again through coercion or force. So all these factors, subjectivity, machination, criminality, brutality are at work uh, in national socialism, but also in, in other modern movements um, as he sees them. Um, and he's looking for something else. He thinks all of these are late modern manifestations of what he calls the first inception, going all the way back to early Greek thought, which was a very promising, exciting, rich beginning, which is eventually hardened into this domineering will to power. And he is looking for what he calls um, a second inception or the other inception, which might be some sort of mysterious uh, new dawn that, that could come about at some indefinite point in the future. You write about Heidegger's desire to find the, quote, inner truth of the Nazi movement and how this at times put him at odds with Nazi orthodoxy since he didn't buy into the more crude biological racism. While this interest in abstract truths does exempt him from certain accusations of uh, biological racism, it also leads him to make some equally disturbing remarks regarding war, annihilation, and the Jews that aren't what we might expect from an enthusiastic Nazi, but instead demonstrate a more detached callousness towards certain historical events. Can you kind of unpack his approach here, how it differed from more orthodox Nazism, and how, but how at the same time it doesn't just exempt him, it, uh, it leads him to a sort of detached and disengaged callousness towards the events of his time? Sure. And I think this is something we can see pretty pretty clearly in the Black Notebooks. Um, it is important to see that he was against uh, biological racism, as you put it. Um, he will occasionally use the word race during the 30s, but um, he is always very allergic to the idea of uh, judging people in terms of genetics or um, descent in a biological sense, mostly because Heidegger sees this as profoundly historical and, and biology is a non-historical factor. Uh, of course, this doesn't stop him from supporting, uh, to a certain extent, a racist regime and, and collaborating with it. Um, I, I do see him developing this, this detachment, this disengagement you were talking about um, as the 30s go on. Um, and that has has its own problems. It's not the sort of the standard racism we associate with somebody who's a member of the Nazi party, but but there's a kind of um, lack of empathy and lack of sensitivity to concrete human beings and situations. Um, I've already discussed this in terms of the way he uh, lumps all these political movements together. They're all forms of subjectivity. You know, maybe at a certain level that that's true in terms of um, the way their ideologies have been articulated. Yet, you know, practically on the ground, uh, it makes a huge difference whether you're living under Hitler or under FDR, let's say. Um, there's, a, there's a disdain in Heidegger going back to being in time for um, historical research, historical facts, 
Uh, and, and in German, conveniently, there are two different words that can be translated as history. There's uh, Historie, which is what historians do. And there's Geschichte, the Germanic word, which is more the underlying happening that makes it possible but not necessary for people to become historians. And Heidegger is always trying to get at the deeper Geschichte, um, this, this happening which involves a kind of ecstatic history. There's a collective heritage, a, a collective destiny, at least as a question, a collective present world, and these are all interacting. Uh, and he's trying to think on that level, on that scope, on that scale. Um, there are some passages where he refers to historical facts. This is in, in the Black Notebooks uh, as uh, the frayed threads of the fluttering semblance of concealed history or the most superficial gray scum of a concealed history. So it's, it's utter contempt for particular facts. And, and I would say that means that implies contempt or, or disdain or, or a lack of empathy for particular people and, and their concern and suffer uh, and sufferings. Um, what goes along with this and what's most callous and most disturbing is that even though he has this uh, ideological or metaphysical critique of Nazism as a kind of subjectivism, um, there's a very important passage from about 1938 where he says, uh, I, I no longer think that this movement is a new inception. I understand uh, basically that it's it's uh, just a, a form of late modernity, but for this very reason, it must be affirmed. Now, why does he say this? Uh, I think the answer is that he thinks uh, National Socialism is the most extreme form of modern machination and nihilism. And only if you have something that extreme is the whole thing going to uh, come to some sort of salutary collapse or catastrophe? And only then, you know, once the rubble has, has uh, come down and uh, once the dust has cleared, only then can there be a new inception. Um, so he affirms the, the coming catastrophe as he sees it. Uh, this is, of course, uh, it requires a, a sort of deep, uh, cold uh, indifference to what's going to happen to particular people in this process, whereas he says, um, yeah, everything will be pulverized and the earth will explode, but this could be no misfortune at all. It will just make it possible to have a new uh, dispensation of being. Uh, so after working through his thinking in the 1930s, you start trying to critically engage with Heidegger's politics and see what, if anything, can be salvaged. One area you find some ambivalence about is Heidegger's critique of the Enlightenment subject, since he has this very productive critique of the isolated, rational person. But you find his response, while gesturing in a more inner social direction, has limits. You write, quote, despite Heidegger's communal impulse, the moment of vision is an essentially secret and incommunicable decision on which authentic relations with others are subsequently grounded. Can you unpack this critique of his a bit and maybe what we can salvage from it versus what we ought to discard? Yes, this is, this is a huge question. Now, Heidegger is an anti-enlightenment thinker, uh, and the enlightenment is capable of excesses and, and of forgetting um, the dark, if you will. Um, the way he puts it in, in essays such as The Origin of the Work of Art is that there's world and there's earth. 
world is a sort of uh, illumination that goes along with being part of a, a culture. But Earth is the obscure uh, ground of all that to, to which we're indebted and which we can never fully um, reveal. And you could say that the Enlightenment forgets the Earth. It forgets our embodiment, our throneness, to use a Heideggerian word, uh, our indebtedness, um, the fact of uh, that there are uh, mysteries that cannot be eliminated. There are abysses that, that cannot be proven uh, or, or understood and explained. Um, now, this, I think he has some important points to make there. And um, it, Heideggerian thinking can be a sort of bulwark against um, the overconfidence of the Enlightenment and a sort of a reductive uh, attempt to explain everything in terms of our rational concept. Uh, but there are obviously uh, dangers that go along with this. So uh, the danger of Heideggerian thinking is that you're looking for these uh, mysterious uh, abyssal events that come out of nowhere that we can understand and that transform the world. And um, When an event like that happens, uh, he, he doesn't seem to have any room for some sort of abiding norms or institutions or uh, guidelines that might help us uh, deal with it because these events are going to um, transform our entire world, reground the world. And so all existing institutions and norms and concepts just don't apply. Uh, I think events like that can happen, revolutionary events, but we have to be very, very cautious uh, about them. Um, now, as far as the secret and incommunicable decision goes, um, this has to do with the theme of language and, and silence um, that Heidegger explores in a lot of texts of the 30s and that I discuss in my book. Um, he claims that language uh, arises from silence. Uh, we could put it in terms of the uh, Enlightenment, uh, illumination arises from the abyss and the mystery and darkness. Um, if, if that's the case, uh, then you can't really um, ground a new regime or a new political order on some sort of articulated uh, rational discourse or principles. It has to be this mysterious origin. Uh, and he claims that uh, each of us, each individual in this situation, this revolutionary situation, needs to uh, buy in, as it were, make a secret a personal individual choice to support the new regime. And then there can be uh, unanimity put together out of all these secret, silent decisions. Uh, now, what's what's missing there is some sort of public sphere where these decisions could be worked out through discourse, through discussion, through reasoning in a broad sense. Uh, I don't think it all has to be based on logic and absolute uh, principles, but uh, there should be some sort of shared discourse if we're really going to have if we're really going to have a political uh, sphere. Uh, so what can be salvaged from his critique of the Enlightenment? I think he he raises uh, appropriate doubts or, or reminds us to not be overconfident in what reason can achieve. Um, but I do think we need to make a place for discourse, uh, for conversation, for debate uh, within politics. And we need, to, we need to respect that as more than just what he would consider idle talk or, or chatter or, or superficial um, uh, blathering.
Another area you find Heidegger simultaneously interesting and helpful, but in a somewhat limited way, in is in his attempt to define the we, how a we emerges and is defined. Um, what are the stumbling blocks Heidegger runs into with this theme and what can be salvaged for a more social vision of political engagement? Well, I think uh, the who are we is a great question. Uh, it is one that's um, always at least implicit for any community and for any member of a community. Um, it's not always squarely faced. Um, for example, if we say, uh, let's make America great again, the question is implicit there, right? What is greatness? What is American? What are we all about? Uh, or to pick on somebody from the other side, uh, President Obama used to say, that's not who we are, um, trying, to, trying to stand up for a certain ideal of America. But, well, that, that's a question. Who are we? So I think it's an excellent uh, question, but there are certain implications there that, that Heidegger um, only touches upon briefly or ignores. For instance, um, when we say, who are we? Well, who's invited to ask that question? Are, are immigrants invited? Are minorities invited? Um, who gets to count as the we group to begin with? Um, there are always minorities. There are always different we's. Um, every individual belongs to not just one collective, but a group of uh, collectives. This is what we call intersectionality these days. I'm always part of more than one we. How do those different we's or who's get sorted out? Often they conflict with each other. Um, The we also spills out beyond the boundaries of uh, a state or or a territory. Uh, It spreads out culturally. People go out to other communities. They mingle with other communities. and then these different uh, communities, nations, different collective who's have to interact with each other somehow. And possibly they can ask, who are we human beings? Um, all of this is essential to politics, but it's something that Heidegger doesn't work out in, in any satisfying uh, detail. Um, I like the idea that, uh, that the question, who are we, must remain open. And I think every community will pursue that question along certain lines where it it takes the form of several concrete questions. For instance, there's a book called uh, The 13 American Arguments. The idea is that uh, America is not defined by a set of principles. It's defined by a set of often um, strenuous or even violent uh, disagreements. So it's those questions, though, that that make us Americans, and, and other communities will have other enduring questions. Uh, so in, in short, I like Heidegger's uh, emphasis on the question, who are we, but it needs to be uh, developed and, and nuanced much more than he does. Towards the end of the book, you try to salvage a Heideggerian political philosophy by supplementing it with Hannah Arendt's outline of the political sphere, which is a bit more sophisticated and helpful. In particular, you look at her distinctions between political work and political action. So can you unpack this distinction and how it leads to a vision of political engagement that has certain similarities and parallels with Heidegger, but also some very fundamental and maybe productive differences? Sure. Um, So uh, Arendt, as as listeners may know, was a student of Heidegger's and um, for a while was a lover of his. And uh, learned from him as well as from uh, Aristotle 
she, in, in the human condition, she distinguishes helpfully, I think, between uh, labor, work, and action. So in her terms, labor is the sort of routine, everyday things we need, we need to do to sort of keep ourselves uh, going. Work is a more constructive uh, erection of something that's going to, to last, that's going to provide the framework for a shared world, a sort of forum for us. And then action is the most subtle of these concepts. It's what we do within that constructed world. Uh, action for her typically takes the, the form of speaking. Uh, speaking is the primary form of action. It's always interpersonal. Um, it's plural. There's, there are many unique individuals coming together in a public space, and we act by debating with each other and speaking to each other. This is also how we not only reveal each other, but become who we are. We become who we are through exposing ourselves uh, to these interactions. Um, these interactions are all uh, beginning new uh, events, new unpredictable chains of events. So she's very interested in initiative or what she calls natality, uh, the fact that we can give birth to um, new happenings. Um, I think she's also very helpful in describing what she calls the disabilities of action. In other words, there are a lot of limitations to what you can do in the public sphere. You don't know how your enterprise is going to turn out. Um, it's going to depend on how others receive it and what they do with it. And you don't even know what it means necessarily. You may look back and decide, oh, I didn't even know what I was doing. Uh, and often you won't succeed. And so this public sphere of action is one that's full of irony, it's full of reversals, it's full of frustrations, but that's how we become who we are. Uh, and there's a connection to Heidegger, the, the question of who, the question of selfhood, um, individual and collective selfhood, uh, and the idea of inception too, which for Heidegger is something uh, very um, mysterious and mystical, a sort of um, this, this, creation, this creation of a shared there or world. And sometimes it's not even clear that it's ever really happened uh, to his satisfaction. And for Arendt, she, she makes this uh, something that, that can happen repeatedly uh, and frequently if there is a place for it, if there's a public uh, sphere. So I, I find that her ideas are helpful for bringing some of these, making some of these Heideggerian concepts, inception, um, selfhood, um, crisis, making them a little more relevant to politics as we experience it. One of the limits you find in Heidegger is his continued interest with the politician as a poet or a maker. Even as he grew dissatisfied with Hitler in particular, his vision of politics still stems from his ideas regarding art, poetry, creation, and illumination and an individual who's able to do all these things in such a way as to lead us. Can you unpack Heidegger's vision of political leadership and change and how it ultimately ends up subverting his vision of a more social vision of political agency and engagement? Yes, I think here's where we can identify some, some clear problems um, in Heidegger's political thought um, with some help from Hannah Arendt. Um, Let's start with a, a seminar that um, that he gave in 1933-34. Um, Gregory Fried and I have translated it under the title Nature, History, State. 
and these are actually student notes, but they seem to be a, a pretty reliable reflection of what Heidegger said. Um, and this was when he was rector of the University of Freiburg. So this is his most political phase and his most Hitlerian phase. Uh, and what he says there about the Führer, the leader, is is quite alarming. He says that uh, some people are just leaders by birth, a leader in, in accordance with their personal destiny. Um, and they don't need to be educated. They don't need um, philosophical training, but there could be a, a band of guardians, as he says, a sort of uh, philosophical, uh, perhaps military uh, squad that assists the leader. Uh, and the leader's soaring will um, will show the, the people its path forward. And he even says that the, the whole purpose of education will be to align uh, the people with the will of the leader and to, to establish unanimity. So this is really a uh, dictatorship and uh, totalitarian vision. Um, after he steps down, he does, as I've said, become a little more skeptical and, and remote and ultimately um, quite critical of, of Nazi ideology. Um, but he doesn't develop an alternative view of leadership. I think he continues to think of leadership as a kind of um, work in Arendt's sense. So I was saying that um, work is the construction of a, a space. Um, architecture would be the typical work, whereas action in Arendt's terms is what is supposed to happen in that space. And it's not unanimity. It's not um, obedience and alignment with the leader's will. It's um, becoming ourselves through, through free uh, discourse and debate. Um, Heidegger, like, like many other theorists and philosophers, sees politics, though, as a matter of work or making, uh, which is essentially not intersubjective. You know, somebody can be a craftsman who's, who's making a product and can be isolated in a workshop and can have a plan uh, that he uh, follows out in his work. And if he's an expert, everything can be subjected to that plan uh, pretty reliably. Um, so there aren't the disabilities of action. People who don't respect um, action and its its intersubjective uh, disabilities and just see that as a mess and an obstacle to getting things done, um, they will tend to think of politics in terms of work um, as a sort of architectonic uh, process. And Heidegger, I think, continues to do that. So even as, after he becomes disillusioned with politics, where does he look? Uh, he looks to a poet, a poetes, a maker, uh, literally in Greek, uh, as a sort of founder who has this this vision that inspires the people. Um, that that doesn't uh, leave room for action in the Arentian sense, which is uh, what I think is a much more promising way of thinking about uh, politics. In the final chapter of the book, you develop what you call a traumatic ontology, which involves thinking of the subject in terms of certain phenomenological themes, uh, particularly excess uh, and anxiety. So to wrap things up, what is traumatic ontology and how does it help us think of ourselves as political agents? Well, this is the most uh, speculative and maybe most original part of my book, and it's it's an experiment in trying to um, develop uh, a way of thinking that uh, takes what I consider to be the best of Heidegger. So um, after all these criticisms of his thought, I do think that these three main themes from the 30s are important, and they are, again, 
uh, selfhood, um, emergency, and inception. The way he applied those, especially politically, uh, was was very problematic. But I think these are real elements of the human experience. Uh, so what I do is I take the concept of emergency, and I, I call it trauma, and I try to apply it to a range of experiences um, that goes beyond what we usually think of trauma uh, as, which is a, a very dramatic negative experience, right? A terrible wound that that is difficult to heal. Um, I take it more broadly so that it includes uh, also lesser uh, small shocks, reversals, surprises, and also they can be positive. Um, you know, think of falling in love and Cupid shoots you in the heart with an arrow. That's a sort of trauma, but not necessarily an unpleasant one. Um, and this is not only a question of psychology, but a question of our relationship to being. Um, in other words, how we make sense of things, how we encounter things. Um, my, I'm trying to develop what I call a traumatic empiricism. It's an empiricism in the sense that um, all knowledge and understanding comes from experience, but experience isn't just sense experience. It's this range of uh, traumas in that broad sense, little reversals, shocks, surprises, encounters with what doesn't fit our preconceived notions. And it's through the, all these little and big wounds and through how we incorporate them or heal them or or um, get past them or uh, live with them. That's how our understanding of being uh, develops. Uh, I think this, this very general approach applies in a lot of areas. It applies in love, in religion, uh, also in politics, because uh, in politics, I think we need to be open to surprises, reversals, ironies, um, reinterpretations, ironic outcomes of the sort I was describing when I was talking about uh, a rent. And so um, politics is always going to be traumatic in that uh, broad sense. Um, so this is a point of view that, uh, let, let me sum it up with the, one of my favorite quotes from Pascal. He says, not all that is incomprehensible fails to exist. So uh, we have to be open to new senses of being um, or new experiences of beings uh, that are not initially comprehensible comprehensible, but the challenges that challenge us to extend the range of our comprehension. Um, and traumatic ontology is just a label for the attempt to, dis to understand a human experience in those terms. All right. That brings us about to the end of the book. So as a final question, what are you working on right now? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I have uh, one small project writing about Heidegger and logic. He says in Being in Time that he wants a productive logic, such as he finds in Plato and Aristotle, which I take to be uh, a way of generating new concepts. So I'm going to be exploring that for an anthology on Heidegger and logic. Uh, and I've been writing a lot over the years um, about memory, uh, not directly in connection with Heidegger, but questions like, uh, what is memory? What, how is it possible? What are the different kinds of memory? Um, what are healthier or unhealthier ways of remembering and forgetting, uh, and trying to connect this to digital memory and, and how that's transforming our experience of memory. So that may or may not turn out to be a book, but it's um, something I've been writing about, at least for my own purposes. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. Thank you.